Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 194, The Prisoners of Pettock's Island. Hi, I'm Jake. Way back in episode 51, we discussed the Confederate prisoners who were held at Fort Warren on George's Island during the Civil War. This week, I'll be talking about a different island that housed prisoners during a different war. Our story will start with the only soccer riot in recorded Boston history, which broke out at Carson Beach in South Boston on July 16, 1944. It'll end up with Italian war prisoners confined at Fort Andrews on Pettock's Island in Boston Harbor. Along the way, we'll meet bootleggers, artillerymen, Passamaquoddy seal hunters, opium fiends, and Portuguese-American fishermen. We'll also be taking a virtual visit to one of my personal favorite places, and it's one that's on the brink of being sold off to luxury hotel developers. But before we talk about the prisoners of Pettock's Island, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and my upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is East of Boston, Notes from the Harbor Islands by Stephanie Sharo. It's equal parts history book and travel guide, serving as a perfect introduction for the Boston Harbor Islands novice. From former Harbor Islands like World's End and Castle Island, to popular tourist draws like George's and Spectacle Islands, to the windswept and little-visited Brewsters and Graves, Sharo takes the reader through the entire archipelago of 34 Boston Harbor Islands. In this week's main story about Italian prisoners on Pettock's Island, you'll hear me turn to Stephanie Shoro to fill in the details on other activities that were happening on the island in the early 20th century. Along with prisoners, the Harbor Island became an out-of-sight, out-of-mind home for unsavory activities and businesses like bordellos, speakeasies, and opium parties. And it didn't fit into the context of the main story this week, but there's also a rich history of baseball being played on Pettock's Island. In East of Boston, Shoro says, Pettock's attracted those looking to skirt other laws. The Boston Braves made an end run around the blue laws prohibiting baseball action in Boston on Sundays by playing on Pettock's. Pettock's was also the site of hard-fought battles between local baseball teams and many an old-timers game. Before the Blue Laws were finally changed in 1929, up to 5,000 fans would flock to a long-lost ballpark on a narrow spit of land between two beaches on Pettock's to watch the Boston Braves play. Along with these edgy topics, the publisher's description says you'll learn about pirate treasure, elusive foxes, cross-dressing ghosts, flying Santas, and a strange era of spontaneously combusting garbage dumps. While most of the islands will remain closed this summer, ferry service to Spectacle Island has started up and will run through October 12th. Whether you're a frequent visitor to the Harbor Islands, or if you're considering your first trip, it's worth picking up east of Boston to help you plan your day, and so you know the many historic events that happen on each island. And speaking of historical events, our upcoming event this week is a second talk about Boston and film from the Massachusetts Historical Society, Emerson, and the Brattle Theater. A few weeks ago, we featured a talk focusing on movies that typecast the hub as a home for mobsters, cops, and other tough-talking Irish characters. This week, Jim Vrabel, author of A People's History of the New Boston, and Ned Hinkle of the Brattle Film Foundation will be presenting a more lighthearted counterpart to that session. They'll go beyond the grit to present a more well-rounded portrait of Boston, Here's how the MHS website describes this second event. There are a remarkable number of gritty films set in Boston, yet that is not the only way the city's depicted. There are comedies, period pieces, and films that depict the diversity of the city with much greater accuracy. Next Stop Wonderland, Paper Chase, and Between the Lines have not received the same attention from the Academy, but they have devout followings and depict a different vision of Boston. Our discussion will look at these other visions of the city and discuss short films and independent productions that offer a wider perspective of our city. As with most of these online events, there's no admission fee, but you have to register in advance to get the connection details. 
We'll have the link you need to register, as well as a link to East of Boston, and this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 194. Before I start the show, I want to pause for a moment and say a big thank you to our Patreon sponsors. I'm still busy getting us moved back into our house after a months-long renovation, so I haven't been able to spend much time on podcast research over the past few weeks. Luckily, I could dust off an episode draft that I wrote most of back in September 2018. The draft was old enough that it still had a placeholder for our historic site of the week, which hasn't been a regular part of the show in a couple of years. When I started updating it to get ready to record this week, I realized that I could add several new details because I have access to the Boston Globe archives now. That's just one of many improvements that our supporters have enabled us to make in the time since I first started working on this episode. Our most generous listeners choose to sponsor the show for $2, $5, or even $10 a month. They've allowed us to get access to the Globe Archives, expanded JSTOR access, and to get listed in Spotify and start providing show transcripts. If you'd like to help us keep making Hub History better, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. A hearty thank you to all our new and returning sponsors. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Our story this week begins with, as far as I can tell, the only soccer riot in Boston history, which took place at Carson Beach in Southie in the summer of 1944. An AP report from July 1944 says... The First Service Command reported that the trouble started when a member of the Italian service unit climbed a low fence surrounding the camp to retrieve a soccer ball. One of the Boston police detail, keeping civilians away from the area, apprehended the Italian, and the other prisoners inside the compound started throwing lumber and stones at the policemen. Italian service units were a newly organized form of labor unit in use in the latter years of World War II. While they were fighting with the Axis, hundreds of thousands of Italian soldiers were captured by Allied units in North Africa and Europe. Many were kept in prison camps near where they had been captured, but tens of thousands were shipped to the Soviet Union, Great Britain, and the U.S. for imprisonment. After Mussolini was driven from power in the summer of 1943, his successor signed an armistice with the Allies on September 3rd. One month later, the new government declared war on Germany meaning it was no longer an enemy of the United States. The U.S. government from then on would refer to Italy as a co-belligerent. This change of allegiances called into question the status of the prisoners of war who were held in Allied nations. At the time, there were 50,000 Italian POWs in the U.S. Army intelligence officers screened them for fascist sympathies and prior disciplinary problems then offered them the option of joining Italian service units, which would provide labor in support of the American war effort. Some 70% of Italian POWs chose to join these units, taking this following oath. I promise that I will work in behalf of the United States of America at any place, on any duty, excepting actual combat, and that I will assist the United States to the best of my ability in the prosecution of its cause against the common enemy, Germany. I promise not to abuse the confidence and trust placed in me by the violation of any of the conditions governing any special privileges extended to me as a result of this promise. I promise to obey all orders or regulations issued by the American military authorities, and I understand that if I do not do so, my privileges may be withdrawn, and I'll be subject to disciplinary action in accordance with the Articles of War of the United States of America, which have been read to me. The Italian service units were issued American fatigues with a white patch bearing the word Italy, stitched on the shoulder where the American flag was usually found. They were given jobs at military bases and war industry facilities, where they earned $24 a month. Government documents indicate that they were not supposed to be kept in fenced prison camps, but instead were meant to be housed in the same types of barracks as American soldiers, with the same rations and opportunities for recreation. In reality, however, they were kept behind barbed wire and guarded by military police in compounds near where they worked. One of these fenced compounds was Camp McKay, an Italian service unit camp on Columbia Point in Dorchester, about where the southern end of Moakley Park and the Bayside Expo Center are today. 
The residents of this compound worked during the day at the Boston Port of Embarkation and at the Quartermaster's Depot at the South Boston Army Base. Pictures from the time show long rows of neat wooden barracks, surrounded by barbed wire fences. A report for the House Military Affairs Committee describes the crescent-shaped sweep of Carson Beach, then says, Camp McKay parallels the southern tip of this crescent, running east and west, and was formerly separated from it by a single fence about seven or eight feet high. On warm days when the beach was crowded with weekend bathers, large numbers of people would line up along the fence to look at the Italians inside, some motivated by idle curiosity, and others, of Italian descent, apparently regarding the prisoners more or less as heroes. The mesh in the wire fencing was sufficiently open to permit the prisoners to put their hands through it, a circumstance which enabled them to engage in moderate intimacies with bathing-suited girls outside. This continued until the Boston City Police took charge of the situation. In order to keep the public at a distance from the compound, patrolmen were stationed at intervals outside the enclosing fence. I've heard anecdotal accounts saying that along with petting with the bathing-suited girls outside the wire, as the Washington, D.C. Evening Star called it, there was also a healthy exchange between the prisoners and their neighbors. Italian-American residents of Boston would bring cigarettes, fresh bread, cured meats, and other treats to pass into the compound, while members of the service units would pass out tomatoes and other produce they grew inside the wire. All that changed with one errant soccer ball on July 16, 1944. The House Military Affairs Committee report describes the incident in more detail. The Italian prisoners of war, who often played the game of soccer, conceived the idea of kicking the ball over the fence onto the beach, apparently for the purpose of having it returned by some civilian, thus continuing friendly interchanges in contempt of the police and their regulations. The police then took steps to restrain civilians from returning the ball. On July 16th, one of the prisoners scaled the fence as an apparent gesture of defiance to retrieve the ball, and was thereupon apprehended by the nearest policeman. Immediately, several other Italian prisoners climbed the fence and attacked the policeman and others of his fellows who came to his aid, in force, and with such violence that four of them required hospital attention. The men involved in the affray were deprived of their status as service unit co-belligerents and transferred to prison camps as prisoners of war, with the loss of all privileges. The riot on July 16th was the culmination of a week of escalating friction between the Italian prisoners and their hosts in South Boston. On July 9th and 10th, six Italians were arrested after breaking out of the camp. On July 13th, a lopsided fight broke out, as described in the Globe. A brief free-for-all involving an Italian service unit member, scores of bathers at Carson Beach, and guards at Camp McKay resulted last night when an American sailor threw a stone into the prisoner-of-war compound, knocking a prisoner unconscious. The melee gathered force when a prisoner leaped over the fence to attack the sailor. Bathers sided with the seamen while guards sought to protect the prisoner and keep others from joining him. The trouble was quelled in four minutes. After another stone was thrown at someone in the camp on the evening of July 15th, police were called, in time to prevent a repeat performance. By the time a full-scale riot broke out on July 16th, military authorities were sick of these discipline problems. About 50 Italians were stripped of their status as members of the Italian service unit, and were sent to harsher imprisonment at POW camps. Most were likely sent to Fort Devens in Central Mass, which already housed German POWs, though some were sent to Camp Miles Standish in Taunton, and sources say that some were sent to camps in the Midwest. Camp McKay was surrounded by a second, eight-foot-high fence constructed about 75 feet outside the original fence to help keep the remaining Italian prisoners separate from beachgoers. That arrangement didn't last long. On July 28th, the rest of the ISU was pulled out of Camp McKay and sent to Fort Andrews on Pettix Island. Camp McKay would then be used to house segregated units of African-American soldiers, another group that officials wanted to keep separate from the rest of Boston. But what was this island fort where the Italian service units were taken? 
By the time of World War II, Fort Andrews was past its prime, an aging outpost on Peddock's Island in Boston Harbor. Peddock's is one of the largest of the 34 Boston Harbor Islands, with the longest shoreline. The island is naturally both close to land and isolated, lying just a few hundred yards from Pemberton Point in Hull. It's close enough that if you stand on the bluffs on Peddock's Island, you can hear classes change at Hull High. But it's separated from Hull by the rushing tides in narrow, dangerous Hull Gut. An archaeological survey revealed a number of Native American burial sites on the island, including the oldest human remains ever found in Massachusetts, dated to 4,100 years ago. All the evidence indicates that it's been inhabited for thousands of years. The earliest record we can find from European sources comes from Thomas Morton, whose freewheeling anything-goes 1624 settlement at Mount Wollaston in today's Quincy predated Puritan Boston and annoyed his pilgrim neighbors in Plymouth. In his 1637 book, A New English Canaan, Morton describes the fate of a French trading voyage to Boston Harbor that took place in roughly 1616. It fortuned some few years before the English came to inhabit at New Plymouth in New England, that upon some distaste given in the Massachusetts Bay by the Frenchmen, then trading there with the natives for beaver, they set upon the men at such advantage that they killed many of them, burned their ship, then riding at anchor by an island there now called Pettock's Island, in memory of Leonard Pettock that landed there, where many wild ankies haunted that time, which he thought had been tame distributing them unto five sachems, which were lords of the several territories adjoining. They did keep them so long as they lived, only to sport themselves at them, and made these five Frenchmen fetch them wood and water, which is the general work that they require of a servant. In the earliest record of Europeans at Pettock's Island, the French traders gave the locals enough of an offense that they killed most of the party, burned the ship, and then enslaved the few survivors. Leonard Pettock would come later, in about 1622, as part of the failed Wessagusset colony in today's Weymouth. Reading that account, I wondered what Ankies were. Perhaps another name for turkeys, or deer, or another local game animal. After searching around, the only reference beyond Morton's book seems to be, of all things, an 1813 letter from our boy John Adams to Thomas Jefferson. Adams repeats Thomas Morton's account of the attack at Pettock's Island, and about Ankies he says, Your researches in natural history may enable you to say what are Ankies. Unless they be wild geese, I know no more about them than I do about Yankees. So, I don't feel too bad about not knowing what Ankies are. We're in the company of two presidents. After disease and a series of 17th century wars with the English decimated local Native American communities, Pettock's Island and most of the Boston Harbor Islands was used mostly for agriculture until the late 18th century. Though Pettock's was spared the 1775 skirmishes seen on other harbor islands between British foraging parties and provincial militias that we described in episode 186, it did briefly see action during our revolution. In April of 1776, the Massachusetts Council was annoyed that even after British troops had evacuated Boston, their navy still controlled our harbor. The council questioned whether 1,000 men might not be employed to the best advantage by taking post at Long Island, Pettock's Island, and Nantasket, they being furnished with suitable cannon, ammunition, tents or barracks, provisions, boats, etc., In June of 1776, a version of that plan was put into action to drive the British Navy out. A contemporary news report says that a large detachment of colonial troops were embarked on boats at the Long Wharf, together with cannon, ammunition, provisions, entrenching tools, and every necessary implement, and proceeded for Pettock's Island and Hull, where they were joined by some continental troops and seacoast companies, so as to make near 600 men at each place. Though the artillery meant for Pettock's Island wasn't put into place fast enough, the cannons on Long Island and at Hull soon drove the British ships out of Boston Harbor, never to return. A little bit over a century later, the military turned its eyes toward Pettock's Island again. This time it wasn't the British fleet that they were worried about. It was the Spanish, 
As tensions escalated that would lead to the outbreak of the Spanish-American War a few months later, military planners moved ahead with plans to modernize the defenses around many American harbors, including here in Boston. Spain was a major naval power, and Boston's harbor defenses hadn't been upgraded to keep up with advances in armored ships and naval guns since before the Civil War. A January 1898 wire service story related the plans for the defense of Boston Harbor. The United States government has bought about 63 acres of land in Hull, on the summit of Cushing Hill and Battery Heights. It is the intention to erect there a battery of heavy guns for coast defense. Paddox Island nearby has also been purchased for the same purpose. And when these three points are fully fortified, the guns will command every approach to Boston Harbor and most of Massachusetts Bay from Point Allerton to Cape Ann. Another wire service story in March 1898 reported, The rumor that Hull is to be fortified immediately seems to be well-founded, it being the intention to mount guns on Telegraph Hill next week and place a number of mortars on Pettix Island within the next 10 days. It is said that troops are to be placed at Long Island and Fort Winthrop within the next week. These rumors would turn out to be mostly true. Fort Strong would be built on Long Island, Fort Andrews on Pettix, and Fort Revere would be built on Hull's Telegraph Hill. Fort Winthrop on Governor's Island was not modernized, and it was abandoned by 1905. All these new and renovated harbor forts were built according to a standardized plan recommended by the War Department's Endicott Board. They incorporated reinforced concrete construction, large-bore mortars, and breech-loading cannons that were mounted on retractable, disappearing carriages. On Pettix Island, the first guns of Fort Andrews were ready for service in 1901, with the base complete and commissioned by 1904. Houses for officers and barracks for enlisted soldiers flanked a grassy central parade ground. Large bore mortars were mounted in concrete bunkers that were hidden behind and nearly buried under the island's hills. These monster guns could fire a thousand-pound armor-piercing shell eight miles out into the harbor. At the top of the island's hills, the disappearing guns were mounted in more bunkers with a direct view of the sea. During World War I, field artillery units trained on the island before deploying to Europe, and the coastal defense artillery remained on high alert for German U-boats. However, by World War II, the island's defenses were quickly becoming obsolete. Air power and submarines were more than a match for stationary coastal guns, and the guns on Pettix Island were proving themselves to be something of a laughingstock. After live fire exercises in 1913 didn't go as planned, the Essex County Herald trumpeted, Shot falls near cottages. 15-pound ball from mortar dropped on Nantasket Avenue. Dateline, Hull Mass. Falling a mile away from the target, a solid shot weighing from 15 to 20 pounds landed in the center of Nantasket Avenue near the Windmere Station. The shot was fired by the detachment of Coast Artillery Corps at Fort Andrews on Pettix Island and came from one of the mortars at Battery Cushing. It was intended for the targets in the main ship channel, but was deflected far to the east, passing over Pemberton and the village of Hull and coming to ground on Allerton Hill. While they may have been censored in reporting like this after the attack on Pearl Harbor just over a week later, the Associated Press reported on another live-fire exercise on November 28, 1941. For the first time in 20 years, the big 12-inch coast defense mortars at Fort Andrews roared out yesterday and all but wrecked the fort. Four times, 1,046-pound projectiles thundered out of the mortar pit, and as each shot was fired, another bit of a wooden barracks approximately 100 feet away fluttered to the ground. First, some windows rattled out. At the second roar, a window casing or two was shattered. The third time, a door flopped down. And on the final boom, the walls shed some of their clabberds. The firing was from two weapons at towed targets, and the success of the coast artillerymen was not revealed. Oh yes, one of the Fort Andrews cooks had trouble too. The first gun barked, the cook jumped, and dinner was scattered in the winds. 
The giant mortars and batteries Whitman and Cushing were all but abandoned during the course of World War II. The cannons and batteries McCook and Bumpus stood ready to fire on any invaders, and lookouts in the watchtower scanned the waves for enemy periscopes. The fort's most valuable contribution to the war effort may have come as an anchor point for two giant submarine nets. These steel cable meshes were stretched from Pettix Island across Hull Gut to Pemberton Point, and across a stretch of water called West Gut, from the southern tip of the island to Nut Island in Quincy. When they were closed, these nets prevented German U-boats from creeping into the valuable shipyards at Hingham and Quincy. They were building the vast Allied fleets that would eventually help win the war. It was into this remote, sleepy, and largely obsolete army outpost that 31 Italian officers and 1,153 enlisted prisoners were incarcerated in the summer of 1944. Matilda Sylvia grew up on Pettix Island, and in her book, Once Upon an Island, describes her first experience with her new Italian neighbors. We, meaning V. Perry and Matilda Sylvia, climbed the hill near the radio shack to our favorite blackberry patch, where the bushes were loaded with fruit. Absorbed in picking and chatting, we were oblivious to the fact that we were almost imperceptibly being surrounded by men. We realized that we were meeting head-on with the Italian prisoners of war which Scuttlebutt had told us would be arriving any day. We'd been asked by the Commandant to remain aloof unless we were with G.I.s. Rumor had it that these particular prisoners had been troublesome in the South Boston POW compound and were being sent to the island where they would not have easy contact with civilians, particularly women. We found them to be gentlemen. But after very brief communication, V and I, following orders, decided to say goodbye and hustle home. Of course, the very fact that Matilda Sylvia was there on the island to witness the prisoners' arrival is evidence that the U.S. military and its Italian prisoners were not the only residents on Pettix Island. There was also a thriving community of fishermen living just outside the wire. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there were three distinct fishing fleets plying their trade on Boston Harbor. The Italian fishing fleet, the Portuguese fishing fleet, and the so-called American fishing fleet. Though, of course, both the Portuguese and the Italian fleets were mostly crewed by American citizens. In the middle of the 19th century, many members of the Portuguese fleet lived on Boston's Long Island. When the city began expanding its hospitals, schools, and almshouses on Long Island, they eventually evicted the Portuguese fishing families who lived there in 1887. Some relocated to Great Brewster and Middle Brewster Islands, while many came to Pettix, floating their cottages across Nantasket Road from island to island on barges. They settled at first on East Head, the easternmost of three landmasses that make up Pettix Island. Just over a decade later, as Fort Andrews was under construction, they were evicted again. This time, most chose to relocate to the middle head of Pettix Island, just across the shallow bay that's been known as Portuguese Cove ever since. A 1909 Boston Globe article describes the settlement that resulted. Snuggled down in a sort of little valley on the westerly side of Pettix Island is a small fishing village of which comparatively few Boston people know and which fewer have visited. As a matter of fact, not many of those who travel what the yachtsmen call the West Way toward Squantum have ever noticed the little village of twelve houses tucked away there in the back of Prince's Head. But the village is picturesque and worth a visit by seekers after the novel. The houses are all small frame structures tenanted by families whose heads make a living by catching fish and lobsters. The houses are all neat and well-kept, and back of each is a tiny garden in which vegetables are raised, while some of the women have even cultivated flowers and made their tiny homes quite attractive. At nearly every house, the cooking is done in a stove which sets out in front and is buttressed by empty dry goods boxes and packing cases, which doesn't detract at all from the toothsomeness of the food prepared. Children are quite numerous in the village, and a hearty, wholesome-looking lot they are, too. There is no style put on in the Pettix Island fishing village, but the folks who live there appear to enjoy themselves and abide in comfort. The prevalence of the fishing industry, and the need to support three separate fishing fleets, may go some way toward explaining the presence of another seasonal community that called Pettix Island home 
during the first few years of the 20th century. A 1906 article notes, On the beach on the northwesterly side of Pettix Island can be seen a small Indian wigwam, in which live the Indian seal hunters of Boston Harbor, who are capturing seals every day and who are making money at the business. There are six of them, all members of the Passamaquoddy Bay Tribe from near Eastport, Maine. They were here because the town of Quincy offered a $3 bounty for every seal killed, as every fish that the seals got was considered stolen from a fisherman. An article about the 1907 sealing season says, Many people have wondered why the state encourages the killing of the seals. The answer is to be found in the seal's stomach. Last year, a fishing game warden found in the stomach of one seal, 11 eels, several lobsters, a few flounders, and a general assortment of smelt and other small fish, to the amount of one peck by actual measurement. Multiply several meals per diem of this sort even by the number of seals that have already been killed in Quincy Bay this season, that is, 181, and you get some idea of the competition which seals afford the local fishermen. The 1906 article goes on to say that it's their second summer on the island. They came with four heavy main type canoes, which they'd packed full of camping and hunting gear, and then loaded onto a steamer in Portland. Arriving at Atlantic Wharf in Boston, they began offloading, and the article describes the scene. They started from the wharf on Atlantic Avenue and paddled down among the deep-sea craft whose sailors looked down on the small flotilla from their floating fortresses of iron and wood in astonishment. They selected Pettix Island as the base of their operations and commenced a remarkable campaign against the seal. The article describes how they hunted with one man paddling in the stern of the canoe and the other holding a shotgun at the ready in the bow. After taking a shot, the gunner would quickly pick up a gaff, hook the seal, and bring it on board. They ate a lot of seal meat in the summer, as a way of keeping costs down, and the seal skins were tanned for later sale. The tails were taken as evidence of the kill, and turned in for the $3 bounty. The article published near the end of the season in 1907 quotes the Quincy town clerk as saying that the town had already paid out $543 in seal bounties to the six Passamaquoddy hunters that year. Not a bad haul. One of the hunters told reporters that his group made a living by fishing in Maine in the spring, hunting seals on Boston Harbor in the summer, guiding white hunters in the fall, and making baskets in the winter and Boston's seals were their most lucrative pursuit. The Passamaquoddy made their camp along the beach between the East Head, where Fort Andrews was located, and Middlehead, which was home to the growing cottage community. At the turn of the century, there were about 30 cottages on the island, some owned by Italian-Americans, others by the families of soldiers at the fort, but most by members of the Portuguese fishing fleet. In the book East of Boston, this week's Boston Book Club pick, Stephanie Sharrow describes some of the businesses that grew up at about the same time. Two inns were established on the island, the Y.O. West End House, owned by William Drake, and the Island Hotel, run by John Irwin. A surviving menu from the Island Hotel showed that it offered a full range of food and drink. A sarsaparilla was 10 cents, a Budweiser was 25 cents, and a gin fizz was 20. Broiled lobster would set you back a whole 75 cents, and boiled tripe would take 40 cents out of your pocket. The Island Hotel, however, often served more than food to those willing to pay the price. A small cottage near the hotel provided female companionship for a price. The money was slipped into a slot under a window. In 1909, the Boston newspapers were filled with stories about so-called Chinese picnics and subsequent police raids on Paddock's Island. Chinese picnic was a euphemism for a gathering where people used opium. Even after the hotel proprietors were arrested and the island hotel eventually burned, Paddock's Island was mostly free from prying eyes. During Prohibition, islanders found a reliable way to make a few extra dollars as Matilda Sylvia recounted. During the 1920s, the civilian end of the island had quite a flourishing bootlegging business going. Soldiers, it seemed, would drink anything, from Listerine to rock gut, 
I'm not suggesting the Pettix Islanders sold inferior booze. I think most of it was pure, even though flavored and watered down as far as it could be and still be alcoholic. It was apparently good enough for some of the men to risk court-martial and to engage in any ploy to get by the guards at the outpost. In order to find this ill-fated hooch, the soldiers would hide on the beach and wait until the guards met each other halfway on their walking post, then sneak by the barbed wire fence, which extended to the tide line. In summer, they would take the civilian ferry from Pemberton, or sometimes a friend on guard would allow them to pass and pretend not to see them. Come hell or high water where there was a will, there was always a way to get what you wanted. Enough of the fellows found their way over to the other side to make it profitable for the purveyors. Sylvia was born in 1917, and her memories of growing up on the island before and during World War II sound pretty idyllic. She describes the gardens the cottage community planted, gathering and splitting driftwood to stay warm through the winter, and taking a boat to school, first in Hull, and then in South Boston. Though she sees it through rose-tinted lenses, her memoir makes it clear that those years were not without hardships, mostly due to weather and isolation. Every week, most of the housewives took the long boat trip into Boston to buy meat, fruit, and, particularly in winter, any fresh vegetables the market had to offer. Most supplies were purchased at the commissary, which was around the hill in the huge quartermaster warehouse. Once or twice a week in the morning, Mother would walk to the commissary to place her order. A teamster in a Conestoga-type wagon would deliver it sometime that afternoon. In a 1941 interview with the Boston Post, another longtime resident described what it was like on the island during the 1898 Portland Gale, which we talked about when discussing the whole life-saving station in episode 88. You remember when the steamer Portland went down? There was a big storm here. I was about nine at the time, so I don't remember much about it, but it was a big storm. A snowstorm, too. It blew the house all the way over the hill from the flats over there, he pointed to the ocean end, all the way over the hill. There was a house down here at this side, he pointed to the Quincy end, and that got blown away altogether. My father saved the whole family just in time. He carried the twins back in his arms and froze one hand. I remember the family stayed with us for a couple of days till they built a new house. That isolation is what made Pettix Island seem like the perfect destination for a troublesome group of Italian prisoners in 1944. The Military Affairs Committee report we quoted from before makes a brief mention of the conditions the Italian service units were held in at Fort Andrews. At their compounds, they are billeted apart from American personnel have their own mess halls, post-exchanges, theaters, entertainment, recreation, and chapel. They lived in tents and roughly built barracks within the perimeter of the fort, where the American soldiers could keep an eye on them. Though the report says they had their own separate facilities for recreation, entertainment, and worship, in reality, they shared these facilities with the American GIs who guarded them. They used the combined post-exchange and gymnasium building alongside the soldiers, enjoyed movie nights with them, and attended church at the small, whitewashed wooden chapel beside the fort's parade ground. There was one popular entertainment among the American soldiers that the Italians never adopted. Matilda Sylvia expresses her surprise that the prisoners played a sport other than baseball. The first time I saw a soccer game was when I watched the prisoners play. It was fast and rough. Once in a while, one of the prisoners would be carried off to the hospital. As far as I could gather, there were never any serious injuries. They were completely devoted to this game. America's favorite pastime of baseball seemed not to be of much interest to them. I was a bit surprised, because they seemed to readily adopt American customs, habits, and actions. Even after they were moved from Camp McKay to Fort Andrews, the ISU was employed at the Port of Embarkation and Quartermaster Depot in South Boston. Now, instead of walking to work with the U.S. Army escort, they commuted daily by boat. Though they were still prisoners and considered enemies by many Bostonians, they had considerable liberties, as described in an article from National Geographic magazine. Among the prisoners, around 50 lucky ones were recognized as trustees. 
Trustee status was earned by those who demonstrated good behavior, kept themselves tidy, and followed orders. Being a trustee allowed those prisoners to go places in the prison off-limits to others. But the most coveted privilege for trustees was the Sunday ferry ride to Boston's North End. A military ferry would take them to visit the Italian-American families who sponsored them and return them to Pedix before dark. These trips gave the trustees an opportunity to go to Sunday Mass, eat a home-cooked Italian meal, and talk about their life back in the homeland. Matilda Sylvia recalled those weekend passes as well, and added, Those remaining on the island were allowed to have friends and relatives visit them on either day of the weekend. The guests were not allowed to stay overnight. In his book Discovering the Harbor Islands, Christopher Klein quotes longtime island resident Claire Hale. During the war, the Italian prisoners started coming to the cottages on Sunday when they didn't have to work. They had a grand old time. I remember all these soldiers with Italy written on their uniforms. Just before they were sent back, my grandmother had them visit our house in Somerville. Our house was surrounded by MPs with guns. We were the only Italians on the street in a mostly Irish neighborhood, so you can imagine all the neighbors were on their porches. Not everyone looked fondly at how these prisoners seemed to be pampered. American veterans who remembered fighting Italian forces at Monte Cassino, or Sicily, or Tunisia, were offended by news stories about Italian prisoners being wined and dined in the North End. In July of 1944, Thomas Berry, the Massachusetts chair of a group called the Allied Veterans of World War II, wrote an open letter to the Army, saying, Prisoners should receive only such rights and courtesies as are provided under international law. Some of them killed and maimed our soldiers. Their Axis partners have murdered and tortured their prisoners of war. They've received courtesies almost equal to those rendered dignitaries of friendly nations. Could these conditions exist in Germany or Italy? They have been coddled and pampered by citizens, as well as army authorities. The Associated Press article about this letter notes with irony that while the letter was being prepared, a group of Italian war prisoners from Camp McKay in the Dorchester district of Boston were guests of a club in suburban Somerville, which entertained them with a picnic and a ball game. An editorial in the Boston Herald complained that if Italian prisoners were supposed to be our allies now, they should be shipped back to Europe to fight our common enemies. Somebody dreamed up a new name for the status of a licked outfit and decided to call them co-belligerents. In this country, co-belligerency has been extended to the former minions of El Duce, all of whom were captured in the process of shooting and killing American boys. Have these fellows requested guns and the privilege of going back to help free their native land? If they even asked to go back and help move the gear of war, I'd stand at full salute. But does co-belligerency mean that only American kids are fit to fight and die for Italy? Perhaps everything wasn't sunshine and puppy dogs on the side of the Italian prisoners, either. A brief wire story on the day after Christmas 1944 noted that the ISUs on Pettix Island were being disciplined for a strike. On their refusal to go to work today at the Boston Port of Embarkation, the members of two new Italian service units, which arrived at Fort Andrews, Boston Harbor last week, were confined to the fort under disciplinary conditions on orders of Major General Sherman Miles. This seems to have been part of a pattern of strikes among the Italian service units around the country. From news reporting on the other strikes, we can infer what the disciplinary conditions at Fort Andrews likely were. When Italian prisoners in England went on strike in May 1944, they were confined to camp and given a punishment diet meaning meals of bread and water three days a week. After a strike at a camp near Toledo in March 1945, the prisoners were placed on a bread and water diet and confined to barracks. Their canteen was closed and post privileges were withdrawn. And for prisoners who went on strike in Utah that June, a bread and water diet and outdoor quarters were imposed. The Italian service units were caught in a no-man's land where they were no longer considered enemies, but still treated as prisoners. The series of strikes, including at least one earlier strike in Boston in early summer 1944, 
seems to have been aimed at improving their working and living conditions, and demanding that they not be treated as prisoners. These Italian service units were on Pettick's Island because some of them had rioted and attacked Boston police officers. Many Bostonians still saw them as enemy prisoners, even though their status had officially changed after Italy switched sides in the war. And now they'd gone on strike, and likely been put on a bread-and-water diet as punishment. And yet, throughout their confinement, even after the riot and the strikes, they were consistently given passes to visit Italian-American neighborhoods in the North End and East Boston, where many residents who weren't naturalized citizens had been forced to register as enemy aliens. Though the Geneva Convention required all former prisoners of war to be repatriated after the conflict, local legend says that dozens of former prisoners married local girls and stayed in this country. It's truly remarkable to consider the liberties given to these Italian soldiers who were captured on the battlefield while fighting against American soldiers and compare them to the plate of over 120,000 American citizens who are placed into desert camps under armed guard for the duration of the war simply because their ancestors had come from Japan. When the war was over, the military saw very little utility in Fort Andrews. It was mothballed in 1946, then the island was sold to a private developer in 1958. In 1970, the Metropolitan District Commission, precursor to the Department of Conservation and Recreation, bought the island as a step in creating what's now the Boston Harbor Island State National Park. This move put the future of the cottage community on Middlehead in question. The islanders had never owned the land their cottages were built on. They owned the structures, but not the land they were built on. Most had started out as squatters, then paid a small annual fee first to the U.S. Army, then to the private landowner who bought the property. As part of the development of the park, the MDC announced a plan that would have evicted the owners of the cottages. By the time this plan was announced in the early 90s, there were only about three year-round residents left on the island, but many of the cottages were still used seasonally. A 1991 New York Times article reported on the impending evictions. Now, plans call for further development of the island's fort as a public park. After years of living in obscurity, owners of the 47 cottages have been ordered to leave the island by October 1, 1992. The Metropolitan District Commission, the state agency that oversees public parks and beaches, ordered the eviction as part of a campaign to reclaim public lands from private users. After they evict the cottagers, commission officials hope to restore and redevelop the 27 buildings that are a part of Fort Andrews, the Army Post, and make room for a wildlife sanctuary. But cottagers are refusing to give up their homes or their rustic traditions. None of us are going to go willingly said Matilda Sylvia, a 74-year-old native. This island is part of us. Our feet are tied to the ground. Richard Murphy, who lives on the island year-round, promises a fight. Over my dead body, he said, vowing not to leave his home. The islanders were sympathetic figures, and public outcry soon brought the eviction plan to a halt. Stephanie Shoro describes its replacement. In 1992, a compromise was worked out. The current owners would be allowed to remain in their cottages until they died. They would not be allowed to pass on the cottages to their children or sell them to anyone else. On their death, the cottages would become the property of the MDC. Anecdotally, it seems that many of the island families deeded their cottages to the youngest member of the family in 1991 or 1992. By the time the compromise went into effect, many burbling infants found themselves the happy owners of cottages on Pettix Island. Nevertheless, as you walk the trails of Middlehead today, it's easy to see the remains of a dozen or so cottages that have been ravaged by nature after falling vacant when their last owners passed away. By 2010, Fort Andrews was overgrown and decrepit enough to serve as an appropriately creepy filming location for the Demented Asylum, portrayed in Martin Scorsese's film Shutter Island. The following year, the DCR began a concerted cleanup effort to try to make the fort safe and inviting for visitors. Some of the most decayed buildings were demolished, 
debris was cleared where other buildings had earlier burned down, and the remaining structures were boarded up and stabilized. When we're not in a global pandemic, ferries from Boston's Long Wharf and the Hingham Shipyard now serve the island in the summertime. Visitors can explore the fort, strolling across the parade ground and past the empty barracks. They can enter the crumbling mortar pits, whose guns caused more damage to the fort itself than to any enemy ship. And they can hike the length of the island, through the cottage community on Middlehead, and past Matilda Sylvia's old home. If you visit, keep your eyes open for the many deer and turkeys that roam the island now that forests have grown up around the barracks and cottages. Comb the beach for shells, sea glass, and perhaps the remains of the submarine net at the far end of West Head. And take in one of the best views of the Boston skyline that you can find anywhere. While you enjoy the history, serenity, and natural beauty of Pettix Island, keep in mind that the DCR and Boston Harbor now are in the planning phase of a redevelopment project for the island. Plans call for historic Fort Andrews to be bulldozed and are replaced by a luxury hotel and spa. So the next time you visit, may be your last chance. To learn more about the prisoners on Pettix Island, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 194. I'll have links to that Military Affairs Committee report, news stories about the Passamaquoddy seal hunters who called the island home, and Matilda Sylvia's book. I'll also have links to many other sources that'll help tell the stories of the Italian service unit and the communities that called Pettix Island home. Just for good measure, I'll throw in some pictures I've taken on the island in recent years. And of course, I'll have links to information about our upcoming event and East of Boston, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. And if you do, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. Listeners. 